Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cardboard Box Eats. Nick's here. Cardboard Box Eats, Cardboard Box Eats, Gabe's here. And today we have a special guest, Chad Forcier. Ooh, ah. Right, Gabe? Right? Absolutely. He had plenty of stories and he was, uh, he had a firsthand experience to one of the most alliterative uh, brawls in basketball, that being the Malice at the Palace. Um, you actually, we looked at the video and you can see him very clearly, like how he reaches out. Well, you know what? He does a better job telling the story. So we'll wait. I'll let him do it. He's a pretty awesome guy. He had a lot of stories and it was great talking to him. He's a NBA champ. True. He's got a heavy ring finger. Yeah, he does. He's a pretty awesome guy. Hopefully he'll win another ring this year. We'll see. But hope you guys like this episode. Be sure to check it out. And if you're not already, subscribe. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Weber. <laughs> and we are doing a special giveaway with this episode. This episode comes out on Tuesday, June 16th. And we're, we'll be running a giveaway until Friday, June 19th. So check out our social media for that. Um, we're on Instagram and Twitter at CBBS podcast. Um, so yeah, without further ado, Nicholas, play the saxophone. Have you ever heard of an armchair quarterback? It means someone has an opinion but doesn't necessarily participate in the sport. But it also means that they care enough about the sport to discuss it and try to make it better. In our basketball world, we call this cardboard box seats. We see the game from afar like true fans, but we always show up with the same intensity as if we were at the games ourselves. We don't have the money or the connections like the other talking heads on TV, but we do have some ideas which might seem too out there, and honestly we've got opinions which might change. Either way, we have fun, so come and watch the game with us from our cardboard box seats. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cardboard Box Seats. Nick's here. Gabe's here. And today we have a very special guest, uh, the assistant coach for the Milwaukee Bucks, Chad Forcier. How you doing, Chad? I'm great, guys. Nick, Gabe, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's a privilege to join you guys and uh, looking forward to it. So do you mind kind of telling our listeners a little bit about you, like uh, who you are and, and what you do with the Bucks exactly? Well, I'm an assistant coach for the Milwaukee Bucks, um, and uh, I've been, you know, coaching in the NBA um, in a number of different places over a 24-year NBA career now. You know, have have my 24th NBA season on pause right now with this with this COVID-19 nonsense. And um, you know, as a coach in the NBA, a lot of times um, it can be a pretty uh you know generic position meaning like what i do here may not be a whole lot different than you know some of the other assistants that i'm working with which may not be a whole lot different than assistants that are you know working for the charlotte hornets you know things like that you know that's being general anyway uh you know a lot of times we all do the same general um you know type of work for coaches and of course the details and the nuance can come uh, within the framework of how head coaches put their staffs together and, you know, if they if they decide to define or delineate roles or, you know, how they delegate things. But, you know, the way we do it here with, with, with Coach Mike Budenholzer, uh, we all just roll up our sleeves and coach together. And it doesn't, you know, we don't have any defensive coordinator or offensive coordinator or, um, you know, it, it, we, we just don't have those kind of things. We all just share in the work and, we coach the players. We work players out. Uh, we watch film to prepare for games and the opponent. Um, we put our scout. You know, we write up our scouting reports. You know, for for Coach Bud when we're preparing. Uh, we take the team through. You know, walkthroughs before. You know, at shoot around in the morning. We take them through. You know, put together films and, and take the team through small films before tip off. And that's just kind of a broad a broad stroke snapshot of you know the the the, the common type of work that an assistant coach does. So typically we ask all of our guests, like, give us a scenic route of your career thus far. But reading, like, all the things and all the places you've been, 
Uh, can you actually name all the places that you've uh, coached? That's actually one thing that I can do because I, I do know I do know where I've been and, 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 and where I've lived and how many times I've moved and how many times I've gotten fired and who I've worked for. I do know those things. Um, you know, you can end up in the, in the world of professional coaching, um, you know, really, which includes, you know, high-level college coaching. I was a Division One college assistant coach for four years at, at one point in this whole journey, too. And I consider that professional coaching when, you know, you're making your, your, your living, you're, you know, you're paying your mortgage and your groceries and putting shoes on your kids' feet, you know, by, by being a basketball coach, you know, it can, it can quickly make, uh, make for a gypsy lifestyle. That's very <laughs> nomadic. And, and, um, you know, so to, yeah, to answer your question, uh, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, and I got my opportunity to start with the Seattle Sonics. I got to start my career there at home. Obviously, the Sonics have been, you know, gone for I don't know how long now, but they're obviously the Oklahoma City Thunder these days, as they have been for a while. But I got to start there and got to spend five years uh, with the Seattle Sonics when George Carl was the coach there and Gary Payton was young in his career, Sean Kemp. Um, you know, Nate McMillan was, was, was there, who's obviously the head coach of the Indiana Pacers now, uh, Sam Perkins, Detlef Shrimp, you know, a lot of, a lot of great players there. And then when I left after five years, I, that's when I went to go be an assistant coach in college at the division one level. I left to go to Oregon state university, which is in the PAC 10, um, spent three years. Uh, it's the PAC 12 these days, but in those, in those days it was the PAC 10. So I spent three years as an assistant at uh, Oregon State University, the Beavers, and then um, they showed us the door, got fired, and uh, I then actually spent a real short blip, like almost just a sneeze or a cough. I was at UCLA with Steve Lavin. I went down and uh, joined him after getting fired at Oregon State. I obviously, coached against him, and you know, in the in the Pac-10 all those years, and. Um, he called me up and I went down there and was there during the summer in the off season. Uh, so I was down there for about three months and was preparing to, you know, go through the upcoming year with him just in a support role. He didn't actually have any coaching openings. So I, I didn't actually get, um, you know, a coaching job there. It was going to be kind of a stopgap while I was trying to find another coaching job. And, uh, and late in the, in the, in, you know, in the late summer, early fall, right before the school year got going again, before, uh, college basketball practices opened up. I got a phone call back in the state of Oregon at the University of Portland, another Division One job that plays in the same league with Gonzaga and Pepperdine and St. Mary's and those kind of schools, you know, to come coach. And so I, that was my next coaching job. I went went up there and spent the season coaching the University of Portland, and uh, we got fired after that year. So I ended up getting fired, um, you know, two years, you know, two two marches in a row, you know, basically twice within, you know, within, within 365 days or 366 days, whatever it would have been. So, <laughs> and then from there, uh, went back to the NBA, got an opportunity to, to go to the Detroit Pistons with Rick Carlisle, head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, at that point in time, uh, when Rick got the head coaching job with the Detroit Pistons, it was his rookie coaching, uh, his rookie head coaching opportunity. So he asked me to join him and uh, went back to Detroit with the Pistons, spent two years with him. Uh, we got fired there after two years. And, um, and then uh, Rick ended up uh, getting uh, the job in Indiana with the Indiana Pacers. So I was lucky enough that he asked me to join him again and, um, you know, moved down the road a few hours to Indianapolis and uh, ended up spending four years with the Indiana Pacers with Rick. And then they asked us to uh, pack our bags and go out the door again. We got fired in Indiana. Man. And um, that's when I had my opportunity to go to San Antonio with the Spurs, where obviously I had, you know, a heck of a lot of fun and a heck of a, a privilege and a fortunate opportunity. And, and um, I got to spend nine years there, which, of course, as you can hear from this story, you know, was an eternity uh, in the life <laughs> of a pro coach and certainly in my career. It was, um, you know, just unheard of for me so far to be able to be parked and put down roots and, and spend nine years in one city and, and you know, and, and, and in one job. So nine years with the Spurs. Uh, then I got an opportunity that, that I couldn't say no to in terms of some career advancement. 
I left the Spurs after nine years to go to the Orlando Magic, uh, where I spent two years with Frank Vogel as his lead assistant coach. Um, and we got fired after our second year in Orlando. And then I got asked um, last season to go to the Memphis Grizzlies with head coach J.B. Bickerstaff, who just recently became the full-time head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers a month or so ago. Um, and J.B. called me and asked me to be his lead assistant uh, in Memphis last year with the Grizzlies. And uh, we got fired uh, the morning after the last you know game, game 82 last year. So um, once again, another situation where I got fired twice in 365 days, I guess, I guess it was, between uh, Orlando and Memphis. And then um, got the opportunity to come to Milwaukee this summer uh, when Mike Budenholzer gave me a call. So um, I'm in my first year with the Bucks. I don't know. I have whatever we are, 68, 69, 70 games in, and now we're on pause. Man, that that's definitely... That's a story. <laughs> well, I told you I could do that one. I know I know where I've been. I know where I've lived. I remember everybody that's fired me, and I certainly remember everybody that's hired me. Well, that's good. I mean, we, we were looking at the uh, the list of where you coached, and you just went bullet after bullet. So, well done. You get 100 on your scorecard. <laughs> it's like getting points on the SAT for just getting your name right. There you yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> Participation trophy. So when, when they typically fire a head coach, they, they normally fire everyone on the staff as well, the assistant coaches and everyone too? Yeah, that's, the, that's, that's often the, the, the common way that it works. It's not a rule. And there's, of course, exceptions. Sometimes um, certain positions will get an opportunity to stay with, you know, uh, because the front office, the organization is going to, you know, going to keep them and, and the, uh, you know, the next, the next incoming coach that they hire will be told that, you know, it's going to be one of the conditions that so-and-so or so-and-so is going to have a job. Um, sometimes assistant coaches get told, hey, you know, your destiny or your fate will be left in the hands of whoever we hire. You're going to get, be given the opportunity to, you know, to interview and, and, you know, he's going to have the right to choose if he wants to keep, you know, keep you around, you know, some of those kind of things. And sometimes you're in a situation where it's just, you know, a clean sweep and they're, you know, they want to have a fresh opportunity and they don't want to have any conditions for their incoming, you know, coach. And, and you know, that coach wants to have the right to just bring his own people that he's familiar with. You know, so you get into some of those different dynamics. But as a, as a common idea, um, more times than not, when the, when the head coach loses his job, it typically is, um, is a bad day for a staff of assistant coaches, too. So what what initially sparked your interest in coaching? Like, was there like a single time where you're like, "Man, I'm pretty I'm pretty good at this whole coaching thing." No, you know, um, it's really two things. You know, first and foremost, uh, in a runaway, it's just the love of basketball. I've always loved basketball. Uh, I was a high school player. Um, you know, it wasn't very good, and uh, but but had you know had a, a lot of love for it and 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 big dreams you know with it. And um, and really, what I like to say is is uh, you know, really for all of us, when you get into coaching, you know, anybody that gets into coaching more often than not, it really just becomes uh, at what point your talent runs out, you know, talent or time. And um, we all run out of talent or, or, or time, you know, somewhere along along our journey. And uh, in my case, I ran out of talent really early. So uh, in order to, um, you know, just exercise my passion for basketball and, and, and stay close to the game and in the game, you know, the, uh, the you know the, the the coaching door was in front of me earlier that it, that you know than it is in front of some other people, uh, you know because their their playing talent lasts longer. So um, that was my avenue, and uh, and I knew, you know, really from when I was 18 years old that I wanted to be a basketball coach. Now I didn't have any dreams of being an NBA basketball coach at that point. I didn't even have any dreams of being a college basketball coach. Uh, those things had never entered my mind. I didn't even realize that they could be possibilities or things that I could, you know, have a shot at or, or, or pursue, um, you know, at that point in time. So my mind was only uh, open enough at that stage of life uh, that if I wanted to be a coach, I was going to be a high school basketball coach. And um, so I knew at age 18 that, you know, that at some point I wanted to be a high school basketball coach uh, in that era more often than not, 
usually to be a high school basketball coach, it probably meant you needed to be a teacher at the school. Uh, so it would have meant me needing to become a teacher probably. Um, and uh, I really didn't want to be a teacher. I just wanted to be a coach, you know. But I guess, you know, so I went to college figuring, okay, I'll figure out how to be a high school teacher and coach, and I'll probably be a high school English teacher. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll pick history. I don't know. Um, you know, but that's what I set out to do. So I, I knew I, that's, how, that's, that's why, you know, that's why, you know, that's the why answer to your question about the coaching. It's a little bit of the how and, and uh, just, just loving the game. So what does a typical practice session look like for you guys? Well, um, there's a couple of iterations of that answer. You know, first off, when, when NBA teams start their training camps in October, that's the most intense, you know, detailed, structured, uh, teaching-oriented aspect of of practicing that you're going to get on the whole NBA calendar, you know, in the season. Um, just because you're going to have, you know, some two-a-days and you're going to get to practice for X number of days in a row uh, before you're getting into any games and, you know, things like that. Once you get into the meat of the season, you don't have a lot of opportunities to get too many practices in because of how, you know, rapidly the games come. And and, um, and you have to be wise, you know, with with how much you practice or when you do go on the floor, you know, how much you're going to do or how long you're going to do it, you know, because, you know, you're managing energy and, and, and rest. And, and, and hopefully if you're in a competitive situation like, like the Bucks are where we have aspirations to win a championship this year, you know, you have to always keep the long view in, in mind too. Like, hey, you know, if, if we can make this happen and if we're fortunate enough, you know, we're going to be, play, you know, we hope that we're playing on June 15th. So, you know, the decisions that you're making on November 15th or on January 15th matter. And, um, and so, uh, you know, when you're in the meat of the season, you're typically, and I'm going to just speak for where we are here with the Bucks, um, the, the total length of a, of, of a practice day probably isn't more than an hour with the whole team together. And that includes, you know, eight minutes of that being a stretch with the strength coach, you know, skipping down the court and, you know, swinging your leg and just getting warmed up, you know? Um, and what we also try to do here is make sure that every player gets, you know, a, an individual window of time um, in, in his morning that typically is going to be at least like a 20 minute segment where it's going to be one player coming to see one assistant coach and getting some shots up or working on, you know, something specific to, to become a better, you know, player with his skill level and you know, a better part of the whole. So, uh, but again, when you get back to the, to the entire group setting, it's going to usually be no more than about an hour in the meat of a season. Um, you know, but the total body of work for a player on a given day you know, by the time he shows up and he's going to spend time working on his body in the, in the training room with physical therapists and trainers, uh, they're always going to be in the weight room and, and have some kind of a session with the strength and conditioning coach. As I mentioned, they're going to have a window of time with an assistant coach that's just dedicated, you know, to their own specific game. And then you get the team piece. So, you know, there's, there's more to it in the big picture. But if you want to talk about a coach standing there in front of his team of 12 or 15 guys, all about it all about an hour you get to a game day where you have shoot arounds that's another uh environment and uh you know typically the full length you know maximum length shoot around of any coach in the nba is going to be you know a 60 minute window uh the morning of a game day um and it's up to the personality and the prerogative of you know the individual head coaches and their personalities or their philosophies or their objectives for how they're going to use that window of time. Um, some coaches are going to use, you know, all 60 minutes. Some coaches may push it and try to squeeze 61 or two minutes out of it, you know. But uh, what we do here in, in, in Milwaukee with Coach, you know, Budenholzer, we call him we call him Coach Bud. What we do with Bud is uh, what he likes to do is, you know, get in for our game day shoot-arounds uh, and – you know, get the most important preparation piece out of it, which is usually just letting them shoot the ball a little bit, feel some rhythm. But the preparation piece of going through the walk through the opponents, 
you know, talking about the matchups, um, you know, how we're going to match up with the opponent tonight, covering a couple of their key plays, walking through some of their key plays and how we want to defend them. Uh, and then, like I said, getting a few shots and, and getting out of there. Um, so, like, for us, it, it usually ends up being something closer to maybe a 35 or a 40-minute window you know, with the team group. And again, even on the mornings of the game day before a team shoot around, we're still going to dedicate some individual time, you know, to, to each player where uh, we may shorten it a little bit. Maybe it's not 20 minutes, maybe it's 15, but they're still going to have an opportunity to get in and just kind of get their own shots and really just pay attention to their own, you know, their own time. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of the look of a, of, of, of a game day. As fans, when we look at the sidelines, we typically see one person in a suit or at least a jacket kind of standing up and directing everyone. But there's also like three or four other people on the bench as coaches, assistant coaches, obviously, and they're all doing something different. Is there typically a role that you kind of kind of fill in for that or is it all like does it variate throughout each game? Well, like I said, that's that's always going to be related to uh, each individual you know, team and head coach and, and the philosophy of how a coach likes to either put his staff together or um, establish assistant coaching roles or delegate certain things. So, you know, there, there can be a lot of, a lot of variance in, in, in what's, what's really happening. And like I said, in, uh, in the majority of the places that I've been, you know, who I've worked for and in my situation right now at the Bucks. Um, there happens to be seven of us that are assistant coaches and we all, again, do the same work. We all share the, share the workload. Our job description descriptions are all the same. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what chair you're sitting in or whatnot. Uh, and you know, we don't have too many that just specifically, you know, delegated design, um, you know, roles once, once the game's going, the main thing that, that, that we provide for coach Bud in terms of what he needs from his assistants and what he wants from his assistants. Once again, you can hear that that's uh, particular and unique to the individual head coach. You know, every, everybody's different, what they need, what they want, what they like, uh, their personality, um, you know, their philosophy. And in the case of who I'm working for now, Mike Budenholzer, he, um, you know, he's a hell of a coach. He's a great coach. He's already got, you know, two coach of the year trophies sitting at his house. Uh, he's very talented. He's very smart. He's richly experienced, um, you know, and, and what he really needs is he wants our heads in the game. He wants us watching the game, you know, with him and reading the game with him, um, you know, paying attention to, you know, to, to things that the flow of the game is showing us, you know, uh, matchups that we like or don't like. Uh, you know, any kind of offensive actions, maybe some, de- you know, defensive adjustments we might might need to make in a timeout or at halftime. Um, you know, if, if it's your specific uh, scout, your specific game plan night as an assistant, let's say we're playing the New York Knicks tonight and that's the team I prepared for, um, you know, I'm probably going to, you know, know, of course, the majority of their play calls from their playbook. And so there may be times when they're calling out a play, you know, fist up or two down and, when they're yelling it out, whether it's the head coach yelling it down the side, you know, the other head coach yelling it out or the point guards yelling it, you know, coach Bud may want to know what it is. You know, the assistant might be expected to jump up and say, you know, it's a post up for so-and-so or it's a, you know, it's a side pick and roll, you know, for so-and-so, you know, whatever, something like that. But outside of that um, here, we don't have a, a lot of detailed roles again that we're performing once, once the jump ball goes up. So you've been doing this for for a while. You said 24 years. Has there ever been a, a time when you kind of thought about stepping into that head coach role? Oh, for sure. I mean, I still think about it now. Um, you know, I've kind of been in that place, uh, you know, mentally and, and, and spiritually for, you know, probably the last five or six years now where I'm very, um, you know, it's just something that I really hope I can have an opportunity for. Um, I'd love to have an opportunity, you know, to, to, to do the job. Um, but I don't think that makes, you know, me unique. I think the majority of us as, as this and coaches, as we're working through our careers and, and growing as coaches and, 
building our experiences and developing our coaching skills and, you know, our coaching knowledge and our coaching confidence. You know, the majority of us, that's, you know, what we want to do. You want to, you want to grow. You want to, you know, move that direction. You want to have a chance to, to, to be the one that, that makes the decisions instead of the suggestions. And, um, you know, I hope I get the chance. It's tough. I mean, needless to say, there's only 30 of these jobs are the best jobs in the world. You know, 30 best, you know, there are only 30 jobs in the whole world, the best league in the world. And so, uh, they're needless to say they're hard to come by. There's a lot of, there's a lot of coaches out there, not just assistant coaches in the NBA, but there's a lot of coaches everywhere. Obviously you compete with, you know, college head coaches, you know, last summer, Jim, uh, John Beeline, you know, from Michigan got a, got a head job in the NBA. So, you know, you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know if you'll if you'll get your chance or when you'll get your chance or how you'll get your chance. Um, and lots of people never get their chance. And uh, you know, I'll, I'm I'm at ease with that. And and um, you know, but I can certainly say I'd love to have the shot someday and and, and hope I get one. So now we're going to do what I mean. You have a huge you have a huge resume. We've already said multiple times. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a walk through memory lane, memory lane because you've gone through kind of like, I mean, 24 years as a coach in the NBA, you've witnessed a lot of like kind of historical moments. Um, specifically, the first one that comes to mind, the 2004 and 2005 season, uh, it, was, it was eventful, to say the least, for the Indianapolis Pacers. Can you take us through the night of the, the Pacers-Pistons brawl, a.k.a. The, the malice at the palace? Yeah, I can tell you that... Um... You know, it was an interesting time for for me because I had obviously coached in Detroit, um, you know, a little over a year earlier, I guess two seasons before. So, um, you know, we were in Detroit, as you said, in, at the Palace of Auburn Hills, and most of the players on, on that Pistons team were guys that I had coached, obviously, with Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle, as I already mentioned, was the head coach of Indiana at this time. And, of course, he'd been the head coach of these guys at that time, you know, that were in Detroit. And so, and the, and the previous year, you know, people need to remember, this is late November um, of, you know, of a brand-new season. And we hadn't even quite reached Thanksgiving yet. The NBA season, I'd have to go back and look, but we couldn't have been more than, you know, 10 or 12 or 13 games into the new year. And the history of it is that the previous season, which would have been the first year I was in Indiana with the Pacers with, with Rick, then uh, we had played the Pistons in the in the playoffs. I think it was the Eastern Conference semifinals that year. And uh, we were very competitive. They ended up beating us, I think, in six games that year, which, um, you know, there's a signature moment in that series of Reggie Miller on a breakaway, uncontested, naked court, uh, you know, fast break layup that would have really probably, um, you know, put us in the, in the driver's seat for closing that game out in Indiana. And uh, Tayshawn Prince, who, who I had coached as a rookie in Detroit, uh, just had a sprint down, you know, what people would think of these days as a LeBron James chase down, you know, fast break block. And he had a, he had that play then to chase down, in the open court, uh, and, and, and blocked, blocked a naked layup of Reggie's that, um, you know, that actually ended up stealing the game from us in Detroit one. And, uh, that, that actually was in, uh, if I, if I remember right, that was in game two of that series, but in the end, Detroit beat us, uh, in that, in that series, I think in six games, but we were a really talented team in Indiana then. And, uh, we were young, we were talented, we were cocky, we were a little, you know, it was it was a, a pretty wild group of guys, but really good. And um, so this particular night of the brawl ended up being a national TV game on ESPN. And we go into Detroit and uh, and we kick their ass. I mean, from, from beginning to end, we, we just kicked their ass in their building. And, um, you know, and they're a team that was coming off. Um, they were coming off. Uh, off, they had won a championship. Okay, I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think they won the 2004 championship with Larry Brown. Yep. And so this is the four or five years. So they're they're in a in a in a you know defend the championship you know type of a year, trying to see if they can repeat. And so they're obviously a good team, and we're young and good and up and coming. And and uh, you know we had just won 61 games 
you know, the the previous year that they had won the championship in that series. I was just telling you about, we were a 61-win team in Indiana that year, which was the best record in the NBA, so we were good. And, um, you know, and, of course, you always end up uh, starting to develop. You know, they were in our division. There's a rivalry, you know, things of that sort. So we go into their building, you know, the first 10 or 12 games of the year. We kick their ass on national TV. They feel embarrassed. The game's almost over. I mean, it's, it's you know, all of a minute, minute and five, 55 seconds. I don't know. Somewhere thereabouts left. It's a 20-point game. And uh, I don't need to go into the rest of it. Any, any basketball fan or sports fan um, has seen, you know, has seen it, read it, footage, YouTube, whatever. It's all out there. But, when, you know, when it broke out, um, it was just absolute pandemonium. It was, uh, I mean, I don't know of a better word. It was, it was pandemonium. It was chaos. Uh, it was honestly frightening. There's not a person that experienced player, coach, or fan that wouldn't tell you uh, candidly, easily wouldn't tell you how frightening it was. It was a very frightening uh, environment to be in. Um, just completely, like I said, complete pandemonium, uh, completely unsafe, completely unstable. And, uh, you know, the, uh, so I can remember all those details, but I can remember that you know, when Ron Artest and, and uh, or Meta World Peace, he was Ron Artest then, but when Ron Artest and, and Ben Wallace, you know, had, had the whole thing that triggered, as fans remember, Ron Artest walks over. Uh, in his mind, he's trying to defuse it. He walks away. He goes over. He lays down on the scores table right near our bench. And, um, you know, ultimately what ended up happening was when things didn't calm down, Reggie Miller was out at the time. He had a broken thumb, so he was in a cast. And so Reggie uh, comes off the bench, you know, in his suit with his cast. He's standing there with Ron Artest. Ron's laying on the scores table, and Reggie's just talking to him, making sure that he's, you know, calms down. Hey, we're almost out of here. 55 seconds. The bus is going to start up. We're going back home. Let's just get out of here. We, You know, we won the game. He's occupying Ron. Things are still going crazy on the court. Ben Wallace is pissed off. You know, there's, you know, things going on with players. And all of a sudden, when things weren't calming down on the court, primarily with, you know, Ben Wallace and you know, a few guys, Reggie got distracted and turns away and actually kind of walks away from Ron to go try to, you know, peace broker all the rest of this you know, chaos on the court between our, between all of our players. And as he walks away, I slip in to take his place just to make sure that Ron doesn't change his mind or get involved in anything else. So I walk and right in behind Reggie and now I'm standing at the scores table with Ron. I've got my hand on his chest, kind of patting, patting him on chest a little bit, talking to him, just saying, Hey, let's get this over with. Let's get out of here. You know, da, 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 da. And in a split moment, I took a glance just to check our bench to make sure none of our other players that weren't in the game were coming off the bench, you know, where they could get suspended. I take one breath. I mean, literally, almost a blink of an eye. I take a breath to, to look away. And in that one look away is when the fan threw the beer or whatever it was thrown at Ron and it hit him. And like he had been electrocuted or hit with a cattle prod or something, he literally Ron literally jumped up and bolted off that bench faster than I knew. I tried to shoot spring, tackle him. <laughs> of course, got nothing but air. I mean, I literally tried, but it was that reflexive. It was that fast where he didn't even have a thought except to just instinctually or reflexively, you know, spring. And, uh, you know, from there, I'm, you know, kind of running down the sideline in my suit trying to get an angle and uh, of pursuit, you know almost like I was a you know, cornerback trying to you know, take an angle across the field and catch somebody. I'd jump up on the scores table and leap over statisticians and scorekeepers and laptop computers and whatever. And the next thing you know, I'm up in the stands, you know, 10 or 12 rows up there in the middle of all this. And by then we got a couple other players like Steven Jackson and, you know, there's fans, you know, punching players and it was, it was chaos. So I'm up there trying to, you know, in the middle of all this with all these fans on the road and, people are on my back and I'm trying to, you know, get to our guys and make sure that nothing worse happens and than has already happened. Uh, so that's, you know, I don't want to go on and on, but that is the, the gist of it. It was, uh, it was a terrible night, um, you know, in the, 
in all of sports. It was a terrible night, of course, for the NBA. It was it was a devastating night, um, you know, for the Indiana Pacers franchise, uh, uh, you know, for sure. And um, and like I said, no matter who you were, if you were in the building that night, uh, it was a terrifying experience. Man, yeah, that <laughs> just watching the videos of it all, you know, on on YouTube or ESPN or anything like that, you you could see it. It was frightening, but to hear it firsthand, I mean, you have you have no idea that the videos don't do it justice. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, they try, but these days, whatever you find on YouTube, the, the, it's, it's remarkable to me that. The fact that it was a national TV game on ESPN, anything you dig up now, like the footage is so old and grainy, you know, because the technology changed so fast. It's hard to even, you know, even to see just a great enough picture to really even capture it better. So still in the same year, that was that was Reggie Miller's last um, season. Kind of what was it like being part of that historic, historic season for him um, being like his last his last dance? for the Pacers franchise and just, just NBA fans in general? Well, you know, um, it, it obviously made it really tough that year. We lost, uh, we lost a lot of, a lot of, of player games, you know, obviously from, from suspension, you know, that, that came after that, of course, Ron was suspended for the rest of the year. And Steven Jackson and Jermaine O'Neal lost a ton of games and, you know, just, and it was, uh, just something that, um, you know, again, just really devastated a very, very proud and longly, uh, you know, just longly successful and highly esteemed franchise that had always been a model for, um, you know, a lot of other franchises, the NBA. And, and you know, uh, it just made it tough. It was hard for our fans, um, you know, but, you know, coming out of that whole thing, somehow I just remember that by the time we got, we still made the playoffs and, and um I just remember thinking of all the things that that we had been through. Um, again, losing so many players and so many games and all those, the, you know, all the situations, and yet to still make the playoffs and, and and do well. I just remember thinking, man, like all the things that that Rick Carlisle as a head coach had to manage, you know, in in that in that role as the head coach, and, and just thinking, like, you know, man what a coaching job to be able to get to, to navigate all these waters and still find it, find a way to get this team to the playoffs and, you know, do well. It's like, I just remember all that kind of stuff. And of course, um, you know, I think you mentioned that was the same year that was Reggie's retirement, you know, his, his last year. And I just remember the, the last night of, uh, you know, his last regular season game before we got in the playoffs when we were playing at home in Conseco Fieldhouse and, just what a special night it was to, to see a, you know, a surefire Hall of Fame, you know, first ballot Hall of Famer to be uh, at that point. And someone who had, you know, obviously been a multiple time all-star and, and the face of a franchise for 18 years and was so loved by, you know, all of Indiana, um, you know, just statewide. It was a real special night to, to be in the building that night when, uh, when Pacers fans got to sell the building out Reggie's last regular season game and, and just really um, shower him with their love and appreciation and, and adoration. Uh, that's a night that, that stands out to me and, you know, the, the powerful emotions and, and uh, that everybody in the building felt, and you know, no one had a dry eye. And, you know, I remember that and, and, and remember feeling, um, you know, just so, just so proud to be a part of that moment. And, uh, and, and so fortunate to have been able to spend, you know, two years of my career with someone as wonderful as Reggie Miller. So fast forward to 2006-2007 season. Up until that point, you'd pretty much kind of been in the Eastern Conference Finals, and you made the playoffs pretty consistently, actually every single time. Um, but this, the 2006-2007 season, it was the first season that you didn't make the playoffs uh, in, in the beginning of your coaching career. What, what was that like? Yeah, it was tough because, um, as you said, you know, um, you know, it was a, it was not only the first time that I had never been a part of the playoffs, you know, in in my career, which which made it for an unusual feeling and, a, and an odd experience. It was the first time that the Pacers had missed the playoffs. And, um, you guys would know, and maybe you have it in front of you, but it it was the first time they'd missed the playoffs in a long, long time. And again. Um, a lot of fans may not realize it now, but in that era of time, we're talking about, 
you know the the uh, you know throughout the throughout the the nineties and and again the, the early two thousands uh, the Pacers had always been um, just such a model franchise for the rest of the league and so respected and again you know perennial playoff team year in and year out and, and always a, a class act and always well managed and well run you know Donnie Walsh uh, had, had always just earned such great respect and done such great work and diligent work as a general manager. And, and uh, again, just a, just a model franchise, um, you know, and a consistent one, you know, year in and year out, going to be in the playoffs and going to always have a competitive team, you know? And so, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just feel, I just feel so, so fortunate, you know, to have been able to be a part of that. And um, I don't know. It's, it, it's, I don't know what more to say. Yeah, that's fair. So kind of w- when you were with the Pacers, you were with a lot of like, you were with Reggie Miller, future Hall of Famer, or Hall of Famer like we talked about. And then, I mean, you were, Larry Bird was in the front office. Uh, Mike Brown was an assistant coach with you. So, I mean, you had, you had a lot of greats around you. What, what was that like being around all those greats? Yeah, you know, I, I was, I was fortunate, um, you know, like I have been in so many places in my career, you know, in so many different jobs. Um, I just feel real, real grateful, guys, for, um, you know, the opportunities I've had and the, the, the type of, of, of human beings I've been able to work for and work with, um, the type of talent, both players and coaching talent I've been able to work with. Um, I've just been really lucky, and, and you name some important names there, you know, um, you know, just people that make you better. You, you, you know, you can't. You you could be the the greatest coach in the world, but if you don't get to coach, you know, talented players, you're not gonna, you know, seem like a very good coach or get recognized. You know what I mean? And so, to always have a chance to have been around so many talented players and and, and some special generational type of players, you name someone like Reggie Miller. You know, but again, to be able to to, to work with people. Um, that are talented um, and that whether they're coaches or players that are, you know, better than you are, that make you better, that you can learn from. You Coaches learn from players, you know, more than players learn from coaches most of the time, you know. And, you know, other assistant coaches, you know, the fellow assistant coaches you work with alongside of, you know, make you better. You learn from them and, and they challenge you and sharpen you. And so I've been fortunate to be around, you know, so many great, you know, other assistant coaches, like you mentioned, and, and we can go down the, the list of the head coaches, but you know, you, you can't have a successful team or at least a consistently successful one without, um, you know, talent in your front office and great ownership groups, you know, and, and you mentioned, I've already mentioned someone like Donnie Walsh, since we were kind of lingering on the, on the Pacers thing there. Uh, but Larry, you know, Larry Bird, I mean, come on now, I need to grow up as, as a kid in the eighties and to sit and get to, you know, grow up, uh, watching, you know, magic and bird play each other. And, you know, like all of a sudden one day I'm like, yeah, you know, Larry Bird's my boss. I mean, it was one of those things where it's just one of those just surreal, you know, moments and, and, and a pinch yourself moment and a thing that no matter how many days you go to work and, and, and you're working for Larry or no matter how many times you have that thought to yourself or you say it to, you know, one of your high school buddies, it never really makes sense. It, you know, it's like, this is crazy, you know, uh, you know, but to have an experience like that um, was, was really special. So all things told, uh, I consider myself just really, really fortunate. The following season, you became an assistant coach under Greg Popovich for the San Antonio Spurs, and this would be the first time you'd coach under someone other than Rick Carlisle. What made you want to coach with the Spurs? Was this just another job for you, another opportunity, or was there something else that kind of drew you to this team? Yeah, I mean, you know, really at, by this point, uh, Pop would have been the, the, the third NBA coach I worked for because, again, I mentioned I started in Seattle with the Sonics with George Carl. And, and you know, to your specific note, I was not an assistant coach, you know, for the Sonics. I had a different role, you know, it, it, with, with that team for George at that, at that young age and in, in early stage of my career. But nevertheless, it was, a you know, third coach that I'd worked for, and, you know, and, and um, in third organization. And uh, it was one of those things where, I think most people, most of your listeners, as basketball fans, probably whether they're uh, whether they like the Spurs or hate the Spurs or fall somewhere in between, Spurs are 
you know, for so long have earned, um, you know, such high regard and respect. Again, like them or dislike them, uh, doesn't really matter. I think most people uh, have always, you know, respected, um, you know, that the organization, the, what they've been about, the way they've been able to win at such a high level for such a long time and to sustain um, such a, you know, such a competitive situation for as long as as they have you know and 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 for me at that point in time that, that you're talking about uh when i was fired in indiana after we missed the playoffs and you know which would have been you know after my fourth year coaching the pacers the spurs ended up winning the championship that year they played against the cleveland cavaliers for the 07 championship which was a young lebron james at that point and uh and they beat cleveland um to win uh at that time to win their fourth, uh, the Spurs to win their fourth uh, championship ring and, and their third one in, I think, like a five-year window there, you know, in the early mid 2000s. And so they had just come off of that. And uh, when I had an opportunity to, to become an assistant in San Antonio, um, it was a no-brainer. I couldn't believe my fortune when that, when that door opened. Uh, it didn't require me, you know, even a millisecond of thought to decide if it's a job I wanted. And... Uh, you know, I, 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 I couldn't say yes fast enough, and I couldn't get to San Antonio fast enough. I was so excited to uh, be able to go be a part of that um, just proud organization and one that had garnered, you know, just, you know, inspiring respect by everybody throughout the league and all the basketball. Um, and to be able to go have a chance to learn from Greg Popovich and the great R.C. Buford in the front office and knowing uh, – you know, what solid, wonderful ownership the Spurs had and, you know, had been, re, you know, regarded for that. And, and needless to say, to have a chance to go be around, you know, just greatness and, and someone like Tim Duncan and Mono Ginobili. Tony Parker was actually coming off a of finals MVP that year. You know, it was just one of those things that couldn't have been more um, just a, a dream opportunity or a dream scenario uh, for anybody in basketball culture, an intern. Um, or you're in ticket sales. I don't care what you know what you were. If you had an opportunity to get a job with the, with the Spurs, um, it was an incredible privilege. So while you were um, coaching with the Spurs, you guys got to coach the 2016 All Star Game. What was that like? Getting to coach some some of the greats like uh, Steph, Clay, Kobe was on the team. What was that like? Yeah, you know, actually, when I was in San Antonio, I got to coach the All Star Game three times, which is like oh, amazing. Um, you know, I got to got to do it in 16 i think we were up in toronto that year and 13 um we were down in houston and then i think uh maybe in 2011 we were in la but yeah i got to be a part of that three different times with the spurs and have been lucky enough to do it you know in some other places too in my career but just the idea of doing it once much less doing it three times in one organization getting a few opportunities you know in some other places like you know we got to do it in indiana one year but you know like it's such a privilege um it's so much fun and um the thing that's really humbling is you know as i'm alluding to there's so many coaches that could go their entire careers i don't care if you're a head coach or an assistant coach they could go their entire careers um you know working in this industry and never have that opportunity even once you know so it all just goes back to me again, recognizing um, from just a position of, of incredible um, humility, just how fortunate I've been, how lucky I've been to have experiences like that um, one time, you know, let alone the multiple times I speak of. And uh, again, just just a great privilege, you know, great fortune and uh, and always so much fun having those kind of experiences. Speaking of great experiences, you had a chance to go and coach the Bucks uh, while they played against the Hornets, I believe, in Paris. How, what was that like? Was that the first kind of international game that you'd uh, you've been a part of? You know, it, it wasn't um, the first time I've been part of international things. And you know, we got we did a lot of things when I was in San Antonio. Um, we'd usually do things at the beginning of the year, you know, in the training camp window of time. You know, we went to we went to um, you know to Germany one year. And, and, uh, and we went to, to Istanbul, Turkey, you know, um, you know, some of those things, we had a few games in Mexico city, some of those kind of experiences, 
But this was a fun one for me because it was the first time of ever being part of a regular season NBA game that took place in Europe like that. And uh, all of a sudden break from your normal schedule. And in the month of January, after you're already 50 or whatever games in head over to you know to paris to to play a regular season you know real game um that was a brand new experience that was really cool i'd also never been to you know never been to paris before so it was a lot of fun to to get to to do that and you know and and get that experience but it was uh it it, it was it was really it was really neat it was it was a fun trip a fun experience a lot of memories uh fortunately we won the game um, it was great to, to be able to bring, you know, the NBA, uh, you know, in live and in person, um, you know, to, to European fans like that. And, and, you know, it was a sold out building. They were excited. Uh, the media coverage was, was immense from, from across Europe uh, to be able to come and, you know, witness that, that event. And, um, again, it was a, it was a privilege and, and one that I'm proud that, uh, you know, proud and I feel fortunate that I got to, to be part of that group. So out of your 24-year season, what season has been your favorite to coach? Well, I was lucky because, you know, we won a championship in San Antonio in 2014. So um, that sounds like, an, you know, like a no-brainer obvious answer, and on some levels it is. But what people have to realize is, you know, if you, if you climb to the top of the mountain like that and, and you get to experience a championship at the highest level of the sport, and yeah, sounds amazing and, 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 and all that kind. But what people won't be able to appreciate unless they've ever been part of a championship experience, be it as a player or a coach at any level, is the, 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 the bond and how that stitches you together to a group of people for the rest of your life and the amount of just connection and, uh, and, and, and love uh, that you forevermore uh, have and will always hold for all the people that you got to, sh- to share that journey with. And so um, that's a that's an experience and a group of people, a team of, you know, players and coaches and management, you know, and, and, and video coordinators and, you know, medical people, uh, you know, that that is just something that, you know, was the greatest experience I've had. Uh, because of getting to the mountaintop and and the other side of the story for for me and 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 all of us in that case is um you know some of your listeners will 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 already know that that the details of that championship came on the heels of us being in the finals the year before against miami and 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 losing you know a game seven um but really what it was is the devastation of of a game six loss in Miami that a lot of, you know, some of your most astute, you know, listeners will probably remember is the, the, the you know, the Ray Allen shot in the corner um, after an offensive rebound, uh, you know, and we, we had a five-point lead with 28 seconds to go on the road in Miami, uh, and literally we're 28 seconds from, from winning a championship in 2013. You know, it was game six, and we were we were about to grab the fourth win that night, and it didn't happen, and uh, so that game six loss was was absolutely, um, I mean, heartbreaking is a pale word. It was, you know, gut wrenching is a pale word. It was, it was devastating. And that's a pale word. And uh, and then to have to regroup after that kind of an experience uh, and get back two days later for a game seven was was an incredible undertaking. Uh, we lose game seven in the ultimate game, game seven of NBA Finals. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that you know that you dream about when you're a kid in the backyard or in the driveway or on the playground, you know. And all of a sudden, we're in you know game seven of the NBA Finals, do or die. You know, it's March Madness type of stuff. You know, that night, and um, to have been able to regroup and compete and play, you know, that well and that hard, uh, but just not be able to get across the finish line and ultimately lose the series. Um, it was just a very you know, uh, just incredibly painful experience for the entire organization and, and things of that sort. So to be able to turn around and suffer through the misery and the pain and the and the hurt of that long off season in the summer of 13 uh, and then come back and somehow the next year end up back in the finals again against the same team and, and, and redeem ourselves, uh, you know, just created an, another element of just a unique dynamic that made that whole season and that whole championship experience and that that entire journey, um, you know, to the top of the mountain that year was just 
you know, the most exhilarating thing I've been through in my career. During your coaching tenure, you were kind of able to witness a drastic change in the NBA, most notably the difference in play style. Uh, what used to be kind of focused around the paint and the mid game now revolves almost. I don't want to say solely, but it seems like 75% of the game is now revolving around the three-pointer. Uh, are there any other differences that you notice on on the court? Well, for sure. I mean, you know, the style hasn't only changed, but, you know, the, the, the rules have changed so much. And, um, you know, there's been lots of, lots of, you know, legislation, you know, in terms of the one thing I always love about the NBA is, is the competition committee and the league are always going to, just constantly scrutinize the game to make sure that our game is is in its best place and that the product we're putting out there for our fans is is going to be the best product we can provide you know and so i just really appreciate and love that and um you know we're always progressive in that way and if there's something that that is is telling us and, and consensus is telling us this needs to be changed it, it gets changed you know and so a there's been a lot of evolution of it since I got started, but you know, rules, rules changes are always a big part of that. So people can talk about where the shots get taken or about, you know, how many threes are going in the air or, you know, the centers don't post up and shoot hook shots anymore. Yeah. Those things are true. But, um, so much of it also is, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, a beauty and a grace to the game that it's free flowing. They've tried to take a lot of the physicality and the fouling and the, and the slug fest, you know, um, you know, out of it and, you know, emphasizing freedom of movement and, and, and trying to be sharper with the execution of, of, you know, what the rule book says. And, and, um, you know, so that has a lot to do with it. And, and, you know, you just, it's, uh, it's certainly not as, as brutal or, or, or physical or even kind of rough and, and ugly, uh, of a game as, as, you know, a lot of us were seeing it being played in, and you know, in the '90s for sure, and, and in the early parts of the 2000s. So, kind of like looking at the beginning of the season, or I mean, before each game, what what kind of motivates you as a coach? Well, I think we're all wired as competitors, um, you know, to to take the challenge of of you know of seeing if you can, you know, get to the mountaintop. You know, take the challenge of trying to make a group of individuals, every team, no matter who you are, or where you've been or what you've done, when you start training camp in October, it's a group of individuals, you know, that are all wearing the same Jersey. They all work for the same employer, but no one's a team yet. You have to, you know, you have to become a team all over again every year. It's always a brand new clean slate. It doesn't matter how long so-and-so has played here or how many guys have played together. You know, you still have to start from square one. And all 30 teams are doing that same thing. So it's always that challenge that coaches get, you know, turned on by it. You know, that's, that's the name of the game. It's the name of the job. It's the, it's the name of, the, of, of our craft or the art that we perform, you know, is trying to figure out, how do you put this puzzle together? How do you build this into the most competitive, cohesive team? Uh, uh, you know, make it a make it a group of people that that work well together and work well for each other, and um, and can get better every day, and, and you know, just continue to build and get better. Literally, try to get better every day as your season moves along. Um, that's 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 the task. That's the that's the challenge. That's the, you know, the competitive endeavor. And, um, I don't think I speak for myself in describing it that way. I would say that that's, you know, what, what fuels all of us, you know, when we go to, when we go to work, you know, the, the ability to make a contribution as just a small part of the group, you know, make your contribution every day toward trying to make, make it better, uh, toward trying to make a player better, toward trying to make the team better. Uh, you know, toward trying to help your head co coach, uh, you know, be better or be smarter or make his job easier so he can be, you know, at his best. That, those are the things that, that, that you get up and, and go do the job for. Kind of, kind of thinking about the team, how do you motivate the team before a game or after, after a tough loss? You know, I can honestly tell you that um, really the, you know, I feel like, 
I've worked for some all-time great coaches and and uh I feel like um in my best experiences uh working for great coaches um you know and 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 that means ultimately also really being lucky enough to be a part of so many great teams you know and so many good teams you know what I find is that in this business unlike maybe other businesses I don't know you know maybe in the NFL when you only play 16 games uh, I don't know, but like in the NBA, when you're doing this 82 nights, you're not jumping up and, and giving speeches like you might over a 12-game high school season. <laughs> um, you know, you're it's it's not new Roshni here, and uh, I can't speak for it how every you know coach in the in the business does it. Um, there's plenty of coaches, obviously, that I don't work for, and and even right now, I mean, I work for one of the 30, you know, has 29 people I'm not working for right now. So, um, but in my experiences, the 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 real motivation um, on your best teams and your winning places is always going to be intrinsic. You're going to be working with a with a group of professional players that are competitors first and foremost. They're competitive. They're proud, you know, and. Um, the, the motivation's intrinsic, you know, any, any raw, raw speech or, you know, uh, you know, R- Rocky Balboa video before you go out to the jump ball or whatever, that stuff, you know, puts helium in the room for, for 30 seconds. And by the time you run up and down the court, you know, two or three times, that stuff's so long gone forgotten, whether it was the speech or the video or, or anything else, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't really translate, um, you know, and so what you get otherwise in a big picture is is groups sometimes will have more of a mission or a purpose or a motive that they may carry with them um, over the course of a of a whole year. You know, a, a long road. You know, like I, case in point, I talked about the Spurs in '14. You know, that group, whether it was ever really spoken about necessarily or not, um, carried with them internally that that pain and that bitterness from the loss in 13 and every every night as competitors and proud proud people and and trying to you know to find the catharsis of, of, of you know for that pain um you know when i went to work for 82 regular season games and knocked out you know four playoff rounds to get to the top of the mountain and 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 their fuel you know collectively was again carried all you know from going back the whole year before and it was it was deeply internalized and again maybe very very rarely even if at all spoken about yeah so uh not a lot of commonly not a lot of raw raw speeches or newt rocky moments uh in most of my best um nba experiences Okay, so now we're going to end with this segment, which we like to call Hot Seat Questions, and they're basically just that. We're going to ask you some questions, and we want you to answer with your gut. We want you to think about it as little as possible. We just want you to, like I said, go with your gut. And some of these questions are like actual questions. And then after the first couple of questions, we might switch it up and have you do a little bit of word association with some of your former players, just to see what really stuck uh, stuck out to you about them, Okay. Sounds good. All right. So, first question. Other than Coach uh, Bud, your current coach, who's your favorite coach to coach alongside? I was so lucky to work for Greg Popovich. All right. So, Adam Silver decides to take the day off, and he, he says, you know what? Why don't you why don't you go and be the commissioner for one day? Is there anything you would change? <laughs> Honestly, right now, I, I no, there's not. I think Adam Silver is outstanding and our game is in a great place what is something that one coach has told you that has stuck with you throughout your entire coaching career don't talk so much (laughs) (laughs) okay now we're going to do the word association with some of your former players now these were randomly selected uh, most of them are big names though so i'm going to tell you one name of the player that you've coached and i want you to say the first word that comes to your mind okay I'll give it my best shot. Okay. Uh, Chauncey Billups. Big shots. The man formerly known as Ron Artest, a.k.a. Meta World Peace. Well, we already covered the story. Unfortunately, I'm stuck with the night that I was standing with him, and I couldn't make that shoestring tackle. Okay. Tim Duncan. I know those last more than one word. Tim Duncan, greatness. Manu Ginobili. Competitor. Ben Wallace. 
Relentless. Aaron Gordon. Athletic. Kawhi Leonard. Stud. Stud, okay. Giannis Antetokounmpo, whose jersey I am currently wearing right now. <laughs> Incredible. Or if I get a second one, then we'll go free. Okay. Kyle Anderson. Great passing. We'll go with Mike Conley Jr. Talented. And then last one, Chris Middleton. Smooth. Actually, you know what? I'm going to make this one the last one. I'm going to change it up. Robin Lopez. (laughs) Hilarious. There we go. Well, Coach, it has been an absolute blast talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the pod and sharing all your awesome stories. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.